Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the generous listeners who continue to support Talking Tudors on Patreon. And extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron community. Visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family to instantly unlock access to exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to enter patron-only monthly giveaways. August's prize is a gift pack from the recent exhibition, The Tudors, Art and Majesty in Renaissance England, kindly sponsored by Dr. Valerie Schutte. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. Now, on to today's episode. I'm so excited to welcome Gareth Russell back to the show to chat about his new book on Hampton Court, The Palace. Gareth Russell is an historian and broadcaster. He studied at Oxford and Queen's University, Belfast, where he specialised in the medieval and Tudor royal households. He's the author of several books, including the Catherine Howard biography, Young and Damned and Fair, and the best-selling Do Let's Have Another Drink about the late Queen Mother. His next book is The Palace, From the Tudors to the Windsors, 500 Years of History at Hampton Court. Let's dive straight into our conversation. Welcome back to Talking Tudors, Gareth. How are you? I'm very well, Natalie. Thanks so much for having me back. Oh, it's always lovely to have you on the show. And I'm so excited because we're here to talk about your new book, The Palace, From the Tudors to the Windsors, 500 Years of History. So firstly, congratulations. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's surreal to see it out, but it's it's I'm being very touched by how it's being received. Absolutely, I've seen only good things about it, so that's wonderful. And and I guess maybe where we could begin is just by asking you why a book about Hampton Court Palace. Yeah, great question. I mean, I suppose partly there hasn't been one strangely for quite a long time. I say in the author's note that this isn't an architectural history, partly because I, I'm not a great believer in retreading ground, particularly if that ground is being trodden by someone who's done it better. And so Simon Thurley's monograph with Yale University Press in 1992, which is an architectural history of the palace, it is excellent. Architectural history is not my, wasn't my speciality. 
And the book, that book is gorgeous. It's a beautiful coffee table book and a great resource as well. It's sort of a nice mix of both. So the palace that I wrote is really about the people who live there. I do talk about the architecture because you can't, you have to. It's so gorgeous. But I don't go into the, the detail of, you know, what kind of bricks they're using or and the names of different arches, etc. It's really about this absolutely extraordinary flowing in and flowing out of history at Hampton Court, which is beyond fascinating. And so I say it's not an architectural book, but the architecture or the, the palace is the spine. And every chapter is a focus in a different room with a different person who lived there in a different decade. And it starts with um, a brief history of what the palace was like before the Tudors. And then it really goes into uh, the kitchens in the time of Henry VII. And we finish up with the tourist areas under the, the then Duchess of Cambridge in 2016. So there's this fantastic amount of genuinely extraordinary, brilliant history that happens at Hampton Court over the years. And also it's a great, aside from just being an arc of sort of monarchy and revolution, there's also a huge number of human stories that happen here, which is why, you know, some of the some some of the chapters at chapter two is Cardinal Rosie, chapter three is Anne Boleyn, but chapter four is Anne Bassett, it's a lady in waiting. Chapter one's kitchen staff, chapter ten, chapter eleven. 10's a Swiss doctor, chapter 11's a page boy, then you're back to James I in chapter 12. So it's really about trying to show the whole hierarchy's experience of this place over the centuries, because a palace, like a country, is never just the great and the good. It's all these people interacting. So Hampton Court had that. It was both important and interesting. So I suppose that is sort of three main reasons why I, I picked it. Yeah, it sounds amazing. It sounds right up my alley. I think it, while I love knowing about all the arches, don't get me wrong, I love all of that. Yeah, I yeah, sure. That, yeah. I think it's that those human stories where we can actually make that really, really strong emotional connection, which drives us to keep returning more me anyway. That's why I love going back to the palace. So well, that's interesting. That's, yeah. that's kind of validating that way, actually, and relieving. <laughs> because um, I say at the end, I, I'm denied about putting this in because I, I, think I love hearing about the architecture, but I said at the end, in the book, my instinct is that it's the stories of the people who bring more of the tourists back than the architecture necessarily. I think looking at it, it is one of the most beautiful. I mean, it's just, it's sort of architectural Tetris. There's so many different periods that just slot beautifully together there. But I, my instinct would be it is it is the people, the people who've lived and, and died there that have helped keep it such a beloved um, attraction and, and visitor centre. Absolutely. Completely agree with you. So you mentioned earlier that you do begin with a little bit of the, the early history of the palace. So yeah. do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, so I think, I mean, a, a lot of your listeners will know that it didn't start under Henry VIII. In fact, I'd say most Shooter fans are aware of the Woolsey connection. Quite a few are, are aware that it, it was lived in by one of Henry VII's favourites, his Lord Chamberlain, which is the post in charge of really running the royal household. His Lord Chamberlain, Sir Giles Daubeney, later Lord Daubeney, rented it. And that's why I, chapter one, Star of the Sea, is about a visit to Hampton Court when Daubeney lived there by Elizabeth of York when she was pregnant with her last child. So that, I, I like going back to the Henry VII period and saying, look, if you are a Tudor fan, but you're not someone who thinks the begins and ends of Henry VIII, when you go, or if you go to Hampton Court, go to the kitchens first. Firstly, the kitchen, I think, is always the, probably the best room in the house. And secondly, Hampton Court, there's still soot on the walls. And it's 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 a lot of it's from the Henry VII period. But I, I stressed... When I was just answering the question, I stressed the word live, not owned, because even Woolsey didn't own it. So Hampton Court is such an attractive site 
I should say, is that it's that there's they found coins there from the reign of the Emperor Vespasian. So it was a Roman villa centuries and centuries ago in the age of Roman Britain, and it sort of stayed prominent or desired throughout uh, the post-Roman period. For anyone who's heard the story of Lady Godiva, the noble woman in English myth who, or English history, sorry, who, according to her myth, rode naked through the streets of the town of Coventry to shame her greedy husband and no longer taxing the townsfolk. Her, their son, Elfgar, owned Hampton Court and then died just before the Normans took it over and the Norman conquest gave it to William the Conqueror's cousin, Walter, a member of the San Valere family. And the San Valeres were very prominent crusaders. They were Later, they were big into the crusades and particularly the Third Crusade. And during the Third Crusade, one member of the family died and another Reginald lived in the Christian Federation at Jerusalem and became devoted to that uniquely medieval crossover brand of warrior monks called the Orders of the Knights Hospitaller of St. John of Jerusalem. And they're generally just known as the Knights Hospitaller. And he was, as a lot of wealthy medieval people did, he gifted land to this order and he gifted them part of the Hampton Court estate. And so the Knights Hospitaller set up an English chapter of their order there and they start renting. Uh, it out to prominent individuals. During the Wars of the Roses, they make a pretty tidy annual sum renting it out to wealthy Londoners who want a place to escape heat and plague when the summer comes. The two things you can be, well, you can be certain of the plague, you can't always be certain of the heat in the in the London summer. But some of the people who rented are a very, very prominent Yorkist called Sir John Wode. He's Speaker of the House of Commons for Edward Fourth. He's later a Vice Admiral under King Richard III. He dies, natural causes, shortly before Richard III's downfall. And then the order rented out to Giles Dobony, which brings us uh, in a circular fashion back to where we started. And when Dobony dies in 1507, it's transferred to his son. But the younger Lord Dobony either doesn't have the money or doesn't have the interest in maintaining it. So he sells the lease to this young up-and-coming courtier, Thomas Wolsey, just at the start of Wolsey's stratospheric rise in royal favour. Wolsey tries to get the Knights Hospitaller, he's friends with the prior, Wolsey loves a good bit of networking, to give him the lease, to sell him the lease and make it a freehold. And the Knights say, no, but we will give you a 99-year lease, which should, should cover you nicely. And so because of the terms of that lease, Wolsey is allowed to do whatever he wants to the place, as long as he maintains a chapel there. And that's how we see it transformed from manor into palace. Henry VIII then takes the lease from him. And you, a lot of people will have heard this sort of debate over, is it 1529 or is it 1531? When is it technically a royal residence? The reason for that confusion is he takes the lease in 1529 from Wolsey. And in 1531, he persuades prior William Weston to do a property swap between the order and the crown. The crown will get... Hampton Court, and in return, the Knights Hospitaller will get the Priory of St. Mary Magdalene in Essex, which is a small house. And it's the property swap equivalent of saying, would you like to give up your first class seat on British Airways for this tricycle? It's that kind of um, ex- exchange. So that's that's the pre-royal history of it, if you like. Isn't that extraordinary? All those layers that come before, you know, the Tudor times that we so love and know, yeah. that's amazing. And I feel like I've missed an opportunity to connect with the Romans when I've been there. So, Gareth, next time I'm there, I'll be thinking Roman history, thanks to you. Yeah, I do. Do you, do you know where they find it, actually? They, they, they find silver coins when Wolsey was doing the renovations, and I think they find them 
ballpark where the privy gardens are that's that's that area yeah yeah and i love that area i love that area so you said that it's this at this time that it sort of transforms from you know manor house to palace let's talk a little bit about what it was like in tudor times i know it underwent extensive changes during this period but maybe you can give us a sort of taste of of what it was like well it's from the it doesn't take long to become I'm a centre of networking. One of the things I, I posted about this the other day on Instagram, which is a small thing I discovered, but I teased a bit on Instagram, but I thought it might be quite nice to share with your viewers and listeners, which is even going into it to look up little bits and pieces of what it was like, how does it function in the Tudor period? Sometimes you'll know this as well. You get a little research trail that starts taking you somewhere else. So the thing I wanted to share, which is small, but I think for us Tudor fans, sometimes little things like this, you're like, oh, very excited about it. Uh, Chapter 2, Turrets and Towers, which really focuses on the Woolsey transformation and looks at 1522. I also write about Lord James Butler, who a lot of people will know was at one point the intended fiancé of Anne Boleyn. And I was going through some of the Irish archives and to, just to check, because James Butler really didn't want to be at Hampton Court. It's a splendid place, but he wanted to be home in Southern Ireland. And Wolsey said, you're not going back until you marry your Boleyn cousin and fix this dispute over the Ormond Earldom. Many people now know or appreciate, you know, I bang the butler drum whenever I can. Uh, so this great misunderstood family you know, at the heart of uh, Tudor history. But a lot of people now appreciate that Anne really was brought back to make this marriage happen between her and her Irish kinsman, James, and that the Boleyns were not overly enthusiastic about this marriage because it meant they would have to yield the earldom. The resolving point was, Piers and Thomas are contesting this this earldom. Thomas has the right to it. Piers has the might to keep it. The government don't know what to do, so they plan to marry Piers' son, James, to Thomas's daughter, Anne, and then they unite the families. But that means that Thomas doesn't get it and his side of the family doesn't get the earldom. His one daughter will get it, but it'll stay in Piers' line. But what I discovered was it wasn't Anne that they initially planned to marry James to. The initial proposal was Mary. Wow, that is exciting. Yeah, yeah. so I I sort of stopped and looked and thought, this can't be right. So initially, the proposal put forward, this is where 1518 yielding into 1519, is that James will marry Mary. I say in the book, so that's the concrete book, it's Mary is the plan. And I sort of say it's quite interesting the many, many ways the Boleyns find a way to drag this out and to, to prevent this plan happening because it's not in their best interests. And I think it's really interesting that as not long after this proposal is made, all of a sudden Mary is married to William Carey within months. And I say, I say, look, I can be sure that she was the intended wife for James. I will leave it up to the reader to decide why this sudden marriage to William Carey. I think it's maybe worth looking. Sometimes we have this idea of Mary as sort of the dud of the, this trio of siblings, trio of siblings, and so we say triad, then it went to trio, the, uh, this trio of siblings. And we come up with conjectural theories of, you know, was her reputation not as good? Was she not as much of a catch? And that's partly because people said, why William Carey when Anne only ever seems to have been considered for earls and George marries a a baron's daughter from a very old money, 10th generation baronial family. Why does Mary marry only a knight? And And really, it looks like I mean, first of all, William Carey is very well connected at court, but I would say there's a decent theory to be to circumstantially suggest that maybe Mary is pushed up the aisle because they want to they they want to remove someone from this 
this Butler marriage plan. So that was that's a sort of a, a sort of sidestep, but I wanted to share that with people because I, I I think people will hopefully find it as interesting as I did that Mary was the um the front runner for Countess of Warmond and then she becomes Lady Carey. So that sort of gives you an idea of all the the many little threads of history and social politics that happen at Hampton Court from the get-go. And Rosie's a master at this kind of stuff. So his household is is a busy spot. You alluded to the other part of how busy it is, which is it it's a building site. It is a constant building site. It I would it took it takes until chapter five for the work to be done. And Henry spends there's six thousand five hundred pages that still survive of what of his expenses reports. Six thousand five hundred. I mean, the amount of money that is spent on Hampton Court is huge. One of the reasons why it takes so long to build it is Henry VIII's unique brand of chop and change, which is that in 1533, I think a lot of people will be surprised to know just how involved Anne Boleyn was in the designs to really make it a, a crown residence. So she is responsible really for it doubling at, well, 1.5 its original size by adding in what becomes the private wing and particularly the Queen's wing. And she is very, very um, chic, stylish ideas for what it is to become. They are just finished when she falls from grace and Henry and his third wife, Jane Seymour, decide to gut it and, and start again. And there's sort of an architectural exorcism with Anne. And it means that they that Jane actually never gets to occupy the Queen's apartments. Either she she is still living above the clock court in this interim room. Uh, she dies. Anne of Cleves never gets to occupy it because she's Queen for such a short period of time. It's not finished. The first Queen to live in the Queen's wing is Catherine Howard, who of course is is associated with her downfall beginning there. And if you're a believer in the supernatural, her ghost haunting it. Once that building period's over now, it is a very favoured home. Even during the building period, it, when it's sort of you know, there's on the one hand you have Anne Bassett arriving with one silk, one damask dress as per stipulations, but she's having to step over kilns in the garden that are um, baking seven hundred fifty thousand bricks to for the palace. It's it's a it's an interesting mix. As Hampton Court always is of splendor and effort, splendor and sweat are that are the two um, competing elements of it. Under Henry's children, it is much more residential and it really is praised by visitors from Europe as magnificent. One of the most magnificent palaces in Europe. It's Edward VI's favourite home. I have a chapter there focusing on the story. The, the summer is experienced by his best friend Barnaby Fitzpatrick. Mary I spends her honeymoon there. That mysterious pregnancy of 1555 happens there. Elizabeth I has a slightly more complex attitude to Hampton Court. And I this was something that really surprised me. That And it gives you a little idea into how traumatic some of these things could be for the people who lived them, which is that chapter nine looks at Elizabeth's near-death experience at Hampton Court in 1562 when she had the smallpox and very nearly died. One of her ladies-in-waiting, Sybil, did die caring for her. But I did not know that Elizabeth was obviously so put off by what had happened that she didn't live at Hampton Court again until 1567, which is a five years is, is the longest chunk. She she very briefly goes there for a weekend to flee the plague, but she leaves as soon as she arrives. And it seems that in that's the five years in which the longest period in which Hampton Court's not used until 1760. So I think for Elizabeth, there were more checkered memories there. But it really is... It's one of the great palaces. It's sort of the rural Whitehall. What Whitehall is in the city, Hampton Court is huge, sprawling, busy, both with people and with politics. So it, it's always it's always a hive of activity when the Tudors are in residence. 
Yes, I think I feel that that bustling energy most in that kitchen area that you were talking about. I get a real totally. sense in those corridors yeah. of, of just people coming and going. And it's interesting that you were talking about, obviously, the chopping and changing. Yes, of course, during Henry VIII's reign. And I, I always find it interesting that in the Great Hall, you know, the falcons are still up there, Anne's falcons on the ceiling, if you if you have a good look. But also what always amazes me is the screen, Gareth, you know, the screen that divides yeah, the, yeah with the very clear and obvious H and A's that were Henry and Anne's. And I wonder, like, why they were left, firstly, I wonder. And then people obviously coming through that area that was such a busy area, that must have been just such a reminder of sort of things that had happened, I suppose. Yeah, I, I mean, I wondered about that. I, I At one point I thought, this is, by the way, totally conjectural, but at one point I did think, was it that someone hung tapestries over it? Was there something? Was there something hung over it that hit it for so long? Because it's you can see it if you just yes. stand. It's not. It's it's not impossible to miss in the way that you know with the falcons on the on the um ceiling. You would have to stop and crane your neck back and really look for them. So yeah, I wonder was something put over over it or was that I don't know but it it's it certainly or is it something that and again this is conjectural or circumstantial I should say looking at the way the great hall is used mm-hmm. in the Henrician period it's not really used by the king he builds it inspects it in the winter of 1533 but for some reason it really doesn't come into its own until Edward VI and what Henry VIII tends to use it for as i say in the book it's the most and least useful room in the palace because it's used all the time but not for what it was intended to they turn it into the staff canteen yeah they set up trestle tables and if you you know you're it's called bouche of the court french for moi you're allowed to um, claim your your daily food allowance and ale allowance from the court when you go down to the kitchens and you get it and you come up as a staff member and you eat it in the great hall so i wonder or was it the fact that he was hardly ever in there that makes it that that's how it was missed? And I suppose if you're, you know, a member of staff, it is way, way above your pay grade to <laughs> the point to point that out. It's been, the story it reminded me of was um, a story I was told when I worked in a book on the Titanic, which is that uh, it's sort of very dark Belfast humour. But there was a carpenter who had worked on the, the grand staircase, and he had, whilst installing one of the panels, cracked it. And had managed to slide it back in and through it, you'd have to really look to see the crack. And he lived in fear of people finding it out. And the morning after it sank, his his best friend, his colleague who worked there, whispered under his breath, Well, Jimmy, don't worry, they'll never find it now. Um, and I think uh, you know, maybe that's sort of <laughs> It's maybe that slightly collegiate spirit of if you're also a member of staff and you've mm. spotted that the carpenters or the artisans haven't taken down the itch and you're not going to dob the minutes. So I think that's possibly the reason why. Yeah, no, they're very good ideas. And I also thought because it's at the service end of the hall, perhaps even if the king was sort of right. up the other yeah. end, he may not have, have noticed. But but that leads really nicely because you were talking there of the functions of the room, what they were meant for, what they were used for. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about that and some of the other rooms and spaces that that you wrote about. It's all the trickiest questions that people ask me. If you if anyone is sufficiently bored to watch all of my interviews, um, there is some. Um, when I'm asked what my favourite room is, I think I've answered differently each and every time. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the Great Hall, as we've discussed, some of the rooms 
the smaller rooms, I think of a privy council chamber, which you can still visit at the end of the haunted gallery, are the most important. It's where the major decisions about the Reformation and the downfall of Queen Catherine Howard take place. One of the rooms that is, we think probably was used more under Henry VIII, it's certainly used actually quite a lot under the Stuarts, is if you leave the Great Hall, you walk into a place called the Great Watching Chamber, which is, I love that room. But we think it might have been where Catherine Howard and Anne of Cleves danced at Christmas. There seems to be a lot more festivities happen there. We know in the Stuart period, they put up buffet tables for aristocrats to help themselves at Christmas parties. And it really is a social hub. So there are rooms, for want of a better word, that are designed for socialising and networking. There is a room next to it. It's not got a fireplace in it. The Georgians turned it into sort of a servant's wedding room, but it was originally the loo. It had a garter robe and a urinal in it. And that was because the the toilet block, the house of great ease, or the house of common easement, as it was called, was far enough away that people thought, well, actually, maybe if it's raining or it's cold, people at the party can just nip in to, to this. There, there's function there. There, um, For anyone interested in where the, the original loo block was, if you're entering where the big, the, through the gateway, as you stand on that bridge, look immediately right. It's now staff offices, but it was once a, a functioning 14 toilet loo block. So the, um, well, those are the functionality ones. The virtual rooms, the chapel's a really tough one to get a handle on because on the one hand, you can go in to the holiday closets, which are like balconies where Henry VIII or his queen would have heard mass. But the view is not necessarily the one that they would have had. We do know it was very splendid, but the palace's chapel really is a reflection of the ways in which religion changed throughout the period. So you have it now magnificent i mean really i managed to get descriptions of what it looked like when Woolsey installed it and it was fabulous but there's a lot of scent changes so Woolsey, to flatter the king originally has a mural that shows Woolsey praying with st thomas beckett st mary magdalene st peter and st paul and on the opposite side is henry the eighth catherine of aragon and princess mary praying that obviously then is changed um, there's also a stained glass window which had St. down the mother of the Virgin Mary, and that's knocked out in 1536 and replaced with St. John the Evangelist, who is Queen Jane Seymour's patron saint. Edward VI then really pushes to remove a lot of the Catholic traces, not all of them, but the tabernacle light goes, a lot of the decoration goes. The stained glass windows, however, are allowed to stay, and that lasts, and then it becomes a Catholic room again, back to under Mary the First, then it's Protestant again under Elizabeth the First. The big changes, though, are when England becomes a republic in 1649, Oliver Cromwell chooses Hampton Court as his country house when he becomes head of state. And he's a Puritan. And so they whitewash the entire room and they smash all the stained glass windows out. They take down the crucifix. They get rid of all the images of the saints that had survived, even through Edward VI. And they replace the glass, the stained glass with um, plain glass. It's turned back into an Anglican place of worship under Charles II, but it's his niece, Queen Anne, who does the big sort of glow up, if you like, of the chapel to turn it into what we see it today. So the space is very similar to what the Tudors would have known. They probably would recognise the, the outline. But this room that would have been the spiritual heart the, of the palace, it's something that the Stuarts and the Georgians would recognise a lot more. And sadly, I mean, it's, well, I say sadly, I know Tudor just like I'm cheating on the cheaters when I say this. I know a lot of people bemoan the fact that the um and bewail my I, I definitely felt this when I was running young and 
damned unfair that the Tudor private wing is gone. It was bulldozed in the 1680s to be replaced by a Baroque wing. For this book, it was a gift because it meant that you are actually moving through so many centuries of history into these gorgeous Georgian and, and Baroque rooms. But the private, that they are on the site of Henry VIII and Catherine Howard's private apartments. So those are those are gone to us, sadly. Yes, that always breaks my heart. I stand there just kind of wanting to, I don't know, bring it back yeah, to yeah. life or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've talked about some of the main events, or, or sorry, some important events that have taken part in the 16th yeah. century. So, you know, you mentioned Elizabeth I, obviously becoming very unwell there, um, Catherine Howard's downfall, of course, and Boleyn's, you know, terrible miscarriage, all sorts of things. Are there any yeah. other events that really stood out to you that took place there? Yeah, Anne Boleyn's miscarriage was kind of heartbreaking because I, did, I mean, for many reasons, but it, I say kind of heartbreaking because the kind of was the, the date. It was a year to the day when she'd arrived there to celebrate her coronation, um, the, the post-coronation festivities. And you just thought that juxtaposition of triumph and tragedy is, is yeah. such an interwoven part of the sheer horror of Anne's life. It, it's it, such it, a repeated pattern, isn't it? That pattern that just seems to repeat. Well, yeah, he all, and Henry also leaves that day. Mm. It happened. He just, oh, horrendous. And um, it's one of those moments where you, when you're in the clock court next to the gate that's now named after Anne Boleyn, and you look around and you think, how many times did she or Jane Seymour or people look at this same view? And it was the worst day of their life. It was not a heartbreaking day. There's a lot of tragedy in it. I suppose, I mean, the wedding of Henry VIII and Catherine Parr there was, was is very interesting. I, I really enjoy putting in a little bit more about Catherine Parr and how sort of chic and luxurious she was. I think a lot of people have this idea of her as, as because she was so intellectually brilliant, dowdy, but there's stuff people find in the book about you know her her dogs had crimson velvet collars and she had milk bounce with almonds you know she rose what she really took care of her herself um she's a much more multifaceted person than i think she can be given credit for another thing that really interested me was this abduction of edward the sixth from there in 1549 when his uncle edward seymour fears a rebellion and he's gathers the supporters of his uh, regency for want of a better word to Hampton Court and has 11-year-old Edward trotted out to give a rousing speech to hold off a rebellion. Edward Seymour decides it hasn't worked. And under a cover of darkness, gets the captain of the guards, a man called Sir John Gates, to help him smuggle Edward out of Hampton Court and ride to Windsor Castle, where Edward VI is supremely displeased at the state of furnishings. Winter's freezing when he gets there. It's autumn and he develops a pretty severe cold and is regally displeased. So I think, yeah, the, the abduction of the, quote unquote, the, the flight of Edward VI in 1549 is very interesting. There's also a, chapter 10, Empty Rooms, is about the, the first tourists. You know, and under Elizabeth I, tourists could pay the staff to show them around the palace when the royals weren't there. So I find the journal of a Swiss doctor called Thomas Platter the Younger. And some of it's very distressing, some of the things he saw. Um, some of it's fascinating. So that so those are some of the things that I think are it's there's always something different happening there. It's wonderful. And it's amazing, as you say, that it was already a tourist destination in the Tudor yeah, period. Yeah, like that, yeah, that's yeah. quite amazing, mind-boggling, really. And I, I know, know those accounts of the the tourists that came, and they're they're fabulous, actually. Yeah, aren't um, they? Yeah, they really are. They are. What was it called? The European tour that everyone went on? Was it the European tour that they did? It was the grand went... tour. They the did. grand yeah, tour. Yeah. yeah. He, well, he well Thomas Planner's stuff is so funny because he says, you know, he can't believe how many pubs there are in England, and also so many witches. 
Wow. That's that's the thing he comes. He says, you know, they they're not tough enough in witches in England, which is also a complaint James the First has. He thinks the English are they're not strict enough, and it's interesting. It's after James the First becomes king that the witch hunts drive up. They're they're not really a thing in the 16th century in, in England. Well, Gareth, you, you mentioned cheating on the Tudors, so let's let's cheat on them a little bit. <laughs> let's tell us about some of the interesting personalities, and as I say, we don't need to stay in the 16th century that are actually associated with this palace. Oh. I mean, they're just extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, I, I, Barnaby Fitzpatrick, Edward VI's favourite, and Giles Dobney, Henry VII were two of the ones I find most interesting because it's different. It's with a different focus uh, on the Tudors. James I's wife, Anna of Denmark, is, is um, pretty fabulous. She's uh, She is a game player. She's very determined. You sort of sometimes get the general whiff that maybe Anna was involved in the plot, but you can't pin it. It's she's um, If she was doing it, she was very good. Private place to fascinating has to go to Charles II's cavalcade of mistresses. And it was um, Hortense Mancini who dressed as both men and women and was a very chic Italian socialite. Could be seen pounding up and down the palace's long water in a boat shaped like a swan. Nell Gwynn sent sweets to other rival mistresses to show there were no hard feelings, but she put laxatives in them. It was, uh, it, you know, there's some really fascinating stuff. Uh, the Georgians are another hidden gem, I think uh, Grace Chosier, who I read about, was a famous chocolatier, and so I can use the chocolate kitchens for that. And then there was uh, Queen Caroline, Sir Robert Walpole, the first Prime Minister, and a socialite a man about town called Lord Harvey, who wrote really scorching letters about Georgian high society at Hampton Court in the time of George II. He, I mean, he was probably the source that made me laugh out loud. It's still very camp what he put down that he had. So he, he is totally fascinating. And then you move into the 20th century when I think a lot of people imagine that the palace is duller. It's certainly not as politically important after George III, but if you're looking at interesting characters, the famous mathematician Michael Faraday's there, the wood to make the unknown warrior's coffin at the end of the First World War comes from an oak in the grounds of Hampton Court, per the request or order, sorry, of George V. And for anyone interested in the Romanovs, there's a fascinating connection, which is that the last, our sister Ksenia, was evacuated to Hampton Court and given a house in the grounds there, partly because um, there, w- there were concerns within the surviving Romanovs and the Windsors that the KGB might want to kidnap her. So they put her in a house that was deep, deep in, in the grounds. She left Hampton Court in the Second World War to go up to Balmoral, where they, the Windsors gave her a home because of the, the London air raids. But she lived there until her death in 1960. So she was the last royal resident at Hampton Court. Starts with a Tudor and ends with a Romanov. So you can't, as a historian, ask for anything more. Oh, goodness. That is, that. yeah, that's amazing. That's absolutely fascinating. And so what do you think would be the, the greatest or, yeah, the greatest scandal that has taken place? Oh. Or one of the greatest at Hampton Court? Oh, probably the greatest, I mean, the, the greatest is Catherine Howard's downfall. Yeah. There's no question of that. And those 12 days, I cover it in Chapter 6, uh, the, those 12 days when it everything's starting to unfold. Francis Durham's arrested there. Lady Rochford's arrested there. The Queen is detained, stripped of her title by a proclamation from there. And also, of course, the search of Thomas Culpepper's rooms happen at Hampton Court that results in the love letter being found. Moving away from the Tudors, probably the greatest... The greatest scandal probably was... uh, Took place in 1737 when 
George II's son, Prince Frederick, and his wife, Princess Augusta, fled Hampton Court under the cover of darkness. Princess Augusta had just gone into labour, and Prince Frederick had fallen out so badly with his parents that he decided to deny them the chance to be under the same roof when their first legitimate grandchild was born. So he and Augusta flee, and the poor woman's going into her contractions as their carriage trundles to St. James's Palace in London. And Queen Caroline wakes up in the morning to find out what's happened, and she's apoplectic. And the, the fallout of that is sort of something that won't be too unfamiliar to royal watchers today. But the, the fallout really then spills and continues from Hampton Court, the royals, how one half of the royal family won't speak to the other half because of what Prince Frederick's done. Prince Frederick insists he deserves an apology before he can consider rebuilding bridges with his with his that side of the family. His parents say that that will never ever happen. And um and he there <laughs> they stick to their word on that one. And it's then compounded by the fact that Queen Caroline falls ill and dies. And so really the consequences of that scandal of him fleeing with his pregnant wife under the cover of darkness. The direct consequences of that last generation or two in the royal family, they never really come back together after that. And I have one more question for you, Gareth. I'm going to end on something that, that people are always interested in and always asking about, and it's the ghost stories. You already briefly mentioned, sure, yeah, yeah. of course, you know, Catherine Howard's ghost that some people sense. And I have to say, I have had people, many people over the years, write to me to say that they've experienced something very strange in that area of the palace. So, Tell us about some of the ghost stories and have you ever experienced anything strange there? Well, to work backwards, um, yes, I have experienced um, some of the stuff. Well, firstly, I'm filming in the Haunted Gallery in October. Ooh. And I, for my, for reasons best known to myself, I said, um, why don't we do it at nighttime? <laughs> so if I have gone mad by late October, you will know why. I was I was with a group of people and I was sort of in the haunted gallery I think about a year or so ago and I was standing over you know sort of the golden chandeliers that line it and I said something like if Catherine Howard made the escape here this is probably as far as she got I'm not really sure I believe in things like that as I said that apart like people looked up and said, the light started flickering above my head, which I, I which I probably was faulty wiring. But when you're in it, you think, oh, I might be getting worse code to say I'm here. So the legends are, are there, there are many ghost stories at Hampton Court, many, many. Of the two that are most prominent, Catherine is the most, Catherine Howard is the most famous. She's not the most prolific, is how I put it. So Catherine, obviously the legend is that she ran from her apartments to beg the king for mercy. There's only one day that could have happened, which would be late morning, early afternoon, on the 6th of November, 1541, which is the window between her finding out she was in trouble and Henry leaving to go back to the Palace of Whitehall. We don't know where this legend began. I, I've searched for a long time to find it. We can't find the, sort of the alpha source for this, but it, it has been around for centuries. I will say it's not impossible that she did it at all, the physical layout of her rooms would make that very... It's hard to imagine how she got that far with no one noticing. But it's not impossible. Unlikely not impossible is how I would summarise it. But the most prolific ghost is um, has the sort of Ravenclaw-esque sounding name of the Grey Lady. And she was one of the ladies... She was actually Edward VI's nurse. Her name was Sybil Penn. And Sybil stayed in the royal household after Edward's death 
1553 and she became a, a great favourite of Elizabeth I. And she was very loyal to Elizabeth as she proved at Hampton Court in 1562 when she continued to take care of Elizabeth throughout the smallpox scare. And Sybil contracted the disease and died at Hampton Court in November 1562. And the Grey Lady, allegedly Sybil Penn, is the most frequently cited ghost and has been since her grave was moved in the 1820s, I believe. I think 1829 is in my head. Yeah, 1829, her grave is moved. And then Sybil becomes the most spotted ghost. Uh, Skeptics would point out that that's also the period in English history when the Victorian belief in spiritualism and ghosts skyrockets was civil fine until the, the, the grave moved. But yes, if you are a believer, Grey Lady is the one that you will probably have seen the most. There's, I mean, there's others, but I think the others are, are sort of um, less spectral and more sensational, by sense, sensory, sorry, not sensational, sensory. So quite a few people have have felt intense, sudden cold or dread in certain places. The Haunted Gallery is one place that that happens quite a lot. But there have been others. Again, I'm really not sure when I think of this, and I I don't comment. I, I just tell the stories in the book, because I think, you know, it's not, your belief is your belief, you know, work away. Uh, but there was another time at Hampton Court, and I was leaving the kitchens, and it was sort of like it was. I used to, I used to time my visits when I wanted to do a bit of research. Say like Wednesday mornings when no one would be there or very few would be groups there. And I left the kitchen and was that long brick lined corridor that leads back towards the base court and up to the great, great hall. I remember stopping and feeling like someone was watching me. And I sort of turned and looked down the corridor. And again, I'm sure that could be just my mind playing tricks. But that sort of feeling that someone was looking at me it was 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 quite strong. It just reminded me, the last time I was at Hampton Court, it's funny, you said you make a beeline for the Tudor kitchens, which is a great idea. That time I made a beeline for the Haunted Gallery because I wanted to be alone in there. And I was, and I reached the oh, sort smart. of that's, Yeah, that's really smart. Yeah, yeah, I reached the entry through the great watching chamber that way. And yeah. there was a lovely beautiful lady reenacting dressed as Anne Boleyn come had just entered the opposite side so when I entered she kind of entered the other side and I honestly Gareth for a moment I thought what is happening <laughs> of course she yeah. was a, a I, reenactor, I, I, but it I, was, I know but I would just have fainted that way that would, oh, I would just it was <laughs> absolutely an incredible moment I just kind of froze there like and then just watched her as she glided up the um, hallway and then turned, went, you know, towards the Great Hall, towards the Great Watching Chamber and the Great Hall. Yeah. It was an incredible experience. And I, and I feel like there's something there. As I'm the same as you, I don't, you know, I'm happy to listen to the stories. I love those stories. Um, yeah, so do I. That's a good way to put it, actually. I love listening to them. Yeah, exactly. But Gareth, th- thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us again. My I am, I'm still patiently waiting for my copy. I'm waiting for my postman oh. to bring my copy, which is well, one of the well, downfalls of being down under, I think. But that's all right. It will appear soon, and I absolutely cannot wait to read it. And I wish you, of course, as usual, all the success in the world. And well, thank you for being so generous. No, you don't need to thank me at all. It's I who should be thanking you. I have a great time and the questions were, were brilliant. And for any American or Canadian listeners, it's like December 5th there. The, I'm actually just signing off on the last final formatting today of the American edition. It's beautiful. The American and Canadian edition is a really, I, I, I love all my children equally. Um, and, uh, and But it is a really gorgeous edition. So it's out now in, as you say, Australia, New, New Zealand, South Africa, Ireland and Britain, Canada and America in December, but just to assure American readers that the American edition, I, I got a few readers saying, is the British one nicer? 
the American one is a gorgeous addition. So it's, um, but I'm sorry it's taken so long to arrive. And thank you very much for having me because these questions were brilliant. It's such a great time. I always do. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.